God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. God is good. Is he, though? When you're having a really bad day, is God good? When you're having a really bad week, a bad month, or a bad year, can God really be good? There may be times in your life where you just want to slug somebody for telling you God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, and inside you're thinking, no, he's not. Say that a little closer. Come say that to my face. Or maybe that's not your personality. Maybe your personality is a little bit different. And instead of wanting to be confrontational, you just start to secretly doubt it. And then you begin to believe that God really isn't all that good. Or maybe God is good all the time, but not to you. You're not alone. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 73. As I read verses 1 through 14, and I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word if you're able. Psalm chapter 73, reading verses 1 through 14. Reading in Jesus' name, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind." Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked." And always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Father God, these are your words, and your word is true. As we open up your word and we look into your truth this morning, Father, we pray that it would strike a chord in our hearts, that you would do the work that you are preparing to do in our hearts through your word that you desire to do, that you would fulfill the purpose for which you sent your word here to us this morning. Remove any distractions that we have, and Father, help us to see you this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The psalmist begins the psalm with a statement saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And as you look at the, the layout and the structure in your Bibles here of these psalms, you'll notice that it's, it's a little different. It's because it's poetry. This psalm is written as a poem. And one of the poetic devices that, po- that the psalmists use here is repetition. repetition. Repetition can be used to emphasize a point. It can be used to intensify a point, further describing a point as well. The psalmist here is using repetition to define who Israel is. It says the God, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He defines Israel here as those who are pure in heart, which is a work that God alone can do. As David prayed previously in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. God is good to Israel. God is good to the pure in heart. 
to those who are trusting in Christ as we realize we are pure because of the work which God has done. We are pure through faith in Jesus Christ. That isn't always how Asaph felt, though. In this passage, it doesn't really look like he is one of the pure in heart. He's wrestling with things that uh, we don't really like to talk about in a church setting. And right after making this statement that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, he proceeds to downward spiral, eventually coming to a place of either doubting or failing to see God's goodness in this text. Asaph takes a gander around him, and everything that he sees in this life seems to contradict the statement that he has just made. Surely God is good to Israel, but I don't see it. And looking at verses 3 through verse 12, we see all these different ways that Asaph says, I don't see God's goodness. If God is good to Israel, then why is it that the wicked prosper? Why is it that they're the ones that live comfortable lives and they're the ones that die free of pain? Why is it that they're the ones who don't have to worry about where their next meal will come from? Why are they fat when others suffer from hunger? Why is it that they do whatever they want and they get away with it and they they prosper from doing it? Why do they get to usurp God's authority and get away with it? Why is their life so easy. We see these questions reach their boiling point as Asaph exclaims in verses 13 and 14, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He asks the question here, what's the point? Why have I bothered trying to do things the right way? Why have I wasted all this time and money and effort and sacrifices? Why have I tried to obey the Lord when all it's done is given me a guilty conscience and a constant reminder that I need to be better? It hasn't benefited me anything. Why bother trying? Why attempt to keep an impossible standard and deal with chastening, being chastened every single day. There comes a time when you realize it's not worth it, and you're ready to give up on everything. Have you ever been to that place? It's a dark place, isn't it? And yet there's a glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope is dangling like an apple or carrot on a string in front of your face when you realize that you can abandon everything. You can abandon these rules. You can abandon these restrictions. You can abandon this God who doesn't seem to care two cents about you or what you're going through or your happiness or your life. And you can be free to do whatever you want. And it looks so attractive. It looks so tempting. And the psalmist here almost reaches out and grabs it. She says in verse 2, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. And it's not just a a minor trip here. This is a stumbling to their demise. Stumbling, tripping to their destruction here. Psalmist is on the verge because it looks so good and tempting. When you're thinking clearly, you cringe at these thoughts. Because you know better, don't you? But that doesn't stop these thoughts from coming into our minds. 
That doesn't stop this carrot being dangled on a stick in front of you saying, abandon everything and live your best life now. Find satisfaction, fulfillment, and happiness and success. The deceiver continues to assure you that these things are found apart from God. These things are found by doing things your way, by doing whatever it is that you want. And he says, look around and see. Look at everyone around you who is seeming to live wicked lives. And in preaching of the word of God, they seem by to earnest admonition and exhortation, and, and by expelling the openly sinful and perverse. Which As I'm just reading that now, I'm thinking, well, this would have been a great way to break it up. First it? day, looking at members of the congregation, which only will lead us Why to uh, despair. Yeah. Hopefully, we were brought Why to the end of ourselves to Jesus so that they find forgiveness in, in Christ. And uh, there's plenty of passages that talk about that. And uh, I think we've got some more that we're going to be looking at hopefully next Sunday. And then looking at this last little section, expelling the openly sinful and perverse. We spend a little bit of time looking at that. We'll spend some more time. Um, I think maybe today we'll see how far we get. So that's a brief recap of where we've been, and now we're going to go where we're going to go. So on page five, we ask the question, what do we mean by the quickening preaching of the Word of God? There's some scripture passages there which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, but when we use this phrase, quickening preaching of the Word of God, what does that mean? of God's goodness here is at stake. He has his own ideas of what the goodness of God looks like. And as he looks around in his life, he's coming to the realization, God, you are not good. Ever... Look at all okay, these so there's a few people. That doesn't mean uh, coming to just simply mean full of emotion. In some way, Asaph is convinced that he deserves better than whatever it is he's getting. Asaph is convinced that God is holding back from him or for his efforts mm -hmm. to keep his life pure somehow entitle him to better treatment from God. Have you ever been there? Have you ever mm -hmm. found yourself in a place where you feel like you are entitled to more of God's blessings than what you're previously getting? That you're suffering for whatever it is in your life and you realize, I don't deserve this, God. Why are you doing this? Ask, and coming to a place saying, God is not good. He can't be. Because look at fill in the blank here. All of that changes for Asaph in a moment. Something happens to Asaph and he begins to see a bigger picture. And he begins to change his mind, to change his... preaching of the word of God by earnest admonition and mind ...as he gazes upon who God is. In verses 15 through 20, listen and follow along as I read these verses. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I preaching to understand of the word of God, by earnest admonition and exhortation, and by expelling the openly sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. After being reminded again of the justice and the holiness of God, Asaph sees his sin and he repents. Oh, I'm stealing my thunder. Go back a little bit here. Asaph is on the verge of abandoning his faith. He is turning his back on the Lord for a life of ease and pleasure. He's saying, God, all these people are prospering and they're living their best lives right now. It's not worth it. It's not worth the sacrifices. It's not worth the guilty conscience to be serving you. He longs for a life where he's not plagued by a guilty conscience. 
A life where he isn't restricted by morality. A life where he's free to pursue wealth and prosperity. A life to do whatever it is he wants. A life with popularity and making a name for himself. And then he enters into the sanctuary of God. As he enters the Lord's presence, he's reminded of what the world, the devil, and our flesh have always denied. The end of the wicked. Ever since the Garden of Eden, the serpent continues to lie and deceive, and that same lie continues to deceive people even to this day. You surely will not die. Go ahead. Do it anyway. The psalmist recognizes the tension that's found here in reconciling God's goodness and justice with the way things happen in the world. And we can have this, see this tension in our lives here today, in the world and things that are going on. Where is God's goodness when grave injustice continues? Where was God's goodness to Israel, to the pure in heart, when 213 Christians were killed and 144 Christians were abducted just in Nigeria last month? Where is the God's goodness when wicked men continue to profane his name without consequence? Let me take it a little closer to home, though, for you and I. Where is God's goodness when you continue to sin? Because you give in to that same lie. You surely will not die. It's no big deal. There's forgiveness. Don't worry about it. Go ahead. Do what you want to do. Turn your back on the Lord and we'll make amends for it later. Where is God's goodness? There. When we slander and we gossip and we lash out in anger and hate and we refuse to submit to the Lord, where is God's goodness? When we give in to sin because, again, we believe that same lie. Let me submit to you that his goodness is in the same place where it's always been. And he is in the same place where he has always been. And in verse 17, that psalmist enters into that sacred space. He's reminded of God's holiness, of God's justness, and he sees God's goodness there. He's reminded that the wicked will surely be destroyed. Have you been the victim of injustice? God will bring justice eventually in good time. His justice will be swift, and those who do this injustice will be utterly swept away by the sudden terrors to continue for all eternity. Will God give sinners what they deserve? Yes, he will. And as Chad read for us in Romans chapter 9, saying, what if God desired to show his long-suffering, his patient endurance as he endures these vessels of wrath? Because he doesn't bring a quick, swift end to them right now. God isn't showing us his grace through that. His grace to you as well as you are not struck dead the instant you turn your back on God and decide, I'm going to do things my way and not his way. Destruction will come, though, in God's good time. The soul who sins will die, Scripture says. And again, Scripture says, the wages of sin is death. The Lord will not look on the wicked with pleasure. The wicked will forever endure his wrath and his judgment, being despised of God when the time comes. We may not see it now, but we can know, based on God's word, that that time will Come. So in a sense, don't worry about it. But Asaph realizes how foolish his accusation against God is. 
And he recognizes here that his arrogant, self-centered accusations against God are entirely false and unmerited. He's blaming God of not being good, and in reality, he is seeing each and every day God's goodness is put on display. He's reminded of his own sin and his own wickedness, even in his own doubting God's goodness or refusing to believe God's goodness. And it's here in the text that as he enters into the sanctuary of God, he comes face to face with the ugly reality of his own awful sin and is reminded once again of God's goodness. Follow along in verses 21 through 28. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. After being reminded again of the justice and the holiness of God as he enters into the sanctuary of God, Asaph sees his sin and he repents. He acknowledges his bitterness and the turmoil of his soul that came, that came as he was looking around at everyone else looking at his experiences, looking around at the life around him and saying, where is God's goodness? I don't see it. I'm not experiencing it. It's not based on my standards. God isn't good. What's the sense in following him? And as he's made aware of these thoughts, he comes and confesses his sin to God and says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. In other words, he recognizes that he's acting totally uncharacteristically like a Christian. This isn't how a Christian would act. He is acting out of bounds. This isn't how believers would act. He had forgotten to allow his faith to inform the way he views the world, and instead, he is allowing his perception of the world to govern his belief. He had forgotten the greatest treasure that believers have. He's serving God only for what God has to give for him. He thinks that by serving God, I'll have a a long, comfortable life here. I'm serving God for what God will give me. The single greatest treasure that far surpasses anything else this world will ever have to offer isn't a life of contentment and happiness and pleasure and free of pain. The greatest treasure that believers have is God himself. That he is their God and we are his people. That's the single greatest treasure. It's certainly not the only treasure, but it is the greatest treasure. If that was all that we had, would we be content? Or are we still looking around at other people's lives and saying, God isn't good because I don't have what they have. Or my life isn't as good as their life. When we do that, it brings us to a place where we're ready to abandon God. But when we realize we've been doing that, we're invited to enter into the sanctuary of God and see his goodness there for us. We're invited to also confess our sin and recognize, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. And then we see that grace of God on display 
as we see in verse 23. Nevertheless, despite my beastiness, despite my senselessness, despite my ignorance towards you, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. The psalmist is reminded that continually and always, he is with God, that God is with him, that he is the pure in heart, not because of his actions. His actions say a different story, but because of who God is and what God has done for him in his life. He trusts in God. The psalmist is reminded again that he's continually and always with God. Fellowship with God is his now and forever, regardless of location, regardless of situation in life, regardless of tribulation. I am with you always, says the Lord. You have taken hold of my right hand, he says. The Lord is with you and holding you, leading you and guiding you. Whatever it is you're going through, he holds you through it all, graciously guiding and leading. Whatever hardships may come, and even if that hardship is long and slow and excruciating and painful and absolutely, utterly miserable and ending in death, through it all, the Lord holds your hands, guides you. And when that hour of death shall come, he grants us a blessed end and graciously takes us from this world of sorrow to himself in heaven. He will receive you unto glory. We may suffer in this life. We may suffer from injustice in this world. And we will have trials and hardship. We will be sinned against. And we will sin against others too. It may not always be full of happiness and laughter. But this life is merely temporary. And there is so much more to look forward to when Christ takes us home. God's goodness doesn't end just because our hearts stop beating. His goodness is his nature. He is forever good. Entering into God's sanctuary not only led Asaph to confession of sin, but also gave him the proper perspective on all things in this life. This world is full of shiny objects to chase after, and a lot of them are very good and noble things in and of themselves. Unfortunately, though, our sinful hearts aren't content to leave them as good things just to enjoy, but creates them into idols to be worshipped things that dictate our life, things that become more important than anything else that this world has to offer, more important than the possession of God himself. All these idols are laid bare as the psalmist proclaims, besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Do we realize that God is this good? That there is nothing better than God? Or are we still chasing those shiny objects, whatever they are, finding our contentment and our satisfaction in that? That desire here of the psalmist isn't limited to this earth, though. How does he start in verse 25? He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? The single greatest joy and desire of the psalmist, having come out of the sanctuary, is God himself. Having realized I am a sinner and yet Christ still invites me into his presence, that God is still with me, he hasn't given up on me, realizes that being with God himself is the greatest treasure on this earth and the greatest treasure for all eternity, the thing he is looking most forward to in heaven. 
psalmist looks to God for all consolation. As a kid, I got excited about all the things that I would have in heaven. I was looking forward to a mansion, and boy, did I have plans for that mansion. I was going to have a go-kart track with go-karts and, and all kinds of fun stuff. There's all kinds of things that were going to be in this mansion. You'd probably be invited one or two days. I, maybe you'd have a room there too. I don't know. But I was looking forward to these things. And then as I got a little bit older, I realized, boy, wouldn't it be great for my best friend to be next door to me? And I realized, wouldn't it be great to have my family here with me? looking forward to all these relationships that I will have and continue to have forever in heaven. And I got excited about that, and boy, was I looking forward to that. You know the thing that didn't make that list that I was excited about? The thing that the psalmist says is his only desire. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, I desire nothing else but you. All those idols I had looking forward to. All the things that are more important to me than the possession of God himself. Than being God's chosen child. I was worshiping creation rather than the creator. Living life for the blessings that I got rather than looking and praising the giver of these blessings. And these are good things that have become idols in my life, which I treasured more than God himself. And there's a word for that. It's sin. And what do we do with that sin as we enter into the sanctuary of God? We recognize I was senseless and ignorant before you. I was like a beast. Father, forgive me for this sin. Help me to see your goodness again. The sanctuary of God explains God's goodness and it reveals to us a beautiful picture of his justice and his love. It reveals God's justice against sin, that yes, there is a day where justice is com will come, but that justice was already accomplished. Justice for both the one who sins against me and justice for me as I sin against others. It's revealed in God's love and his grace that he is both just and the justifier, having redeemed us by the blood of Christ through faith. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised, and on the third day, according to the scriptures, rose again. This God, while we were still ignorant and senseless beasts, even when we were making idols of the blessings that he had given to us, hasn't given up on us. In the midst of while we were still ugly, horrible, rotten sinners with no care for God, when we were senseless and ignorant, sent his son to die for that sin. Sent his son to accomplish justice on our behalf so that when you are sinned against, don't worry, God will take care of it. But sent his son to accomplish justice for the times when we sin against others so that we don't have to bear that condemnation anymore sent his son in order to continually be with us, sent his son to counsel us and to guide us, to hold us by the hand as we walk through the trials and tribulations of life, sent his son in order, words, in order that afterward we too would be received unto glory. He sent his son so that our flat, when our heart and our flesh may fail or will fail, that God will still be the strength of our hearts forever. He sent his son to draw near to us and to draw us near to him. Do you see his goodness yet? It's something to be excited about. It's something which every other 
exciting thing on this earth pales in comparison. This is the God that we accuse of being unjust. This is the God that we accuse of being unfair. This is the God who we accuse of being not good to us, of saying, God, you're holding out on us. You aren't good enough. When in reality, this is the God who is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, who takes your senseless, ignorant, stubborn, beastly heart and forgives you over and over again. Recognizing how close he was to abandoning this God and turning his back on the Lord, the psalmist closes with these words. He says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And that's what he's doing here in this psalm. Saying, surely God is good to Israel. Look at how I almost walked away, but he kept me. He kept me. And he is near me every step of the way. That doesn't change the reality that there's injustice in this world. It doesn't take away the pain of whatever suffering we endure in this life. It does, however, encourage us to enter into that sanctuary of God, to see his justice, his presence, and his goodness. And as we see God in his sanctuary, to acknowledge and confess our sin, to find our consolation in the God who purifies our hearts, who invites us to come into this sanctuary, And we find our satisfaction in the God who is good, who is good to those who are pure in heart, and the God who purifies our hearts. We remember our greatest treasure, God himself. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you and we praise you for your word, for its truth, and for your goodness. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we look to the good gifts that you've given to us and we abuse them and turn them into idols. Lord, that we think that we can find more goodness or better goodness in this world than in you and in your word and the way in which you have called us to live. Forgive us for our sins, Lord. Forgive us for our ignorance. Forgive us, Lord, for the times where we doubt your goodness. Bring us back to yourself. We thank you for your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy. Thank you, God, that you continue to be with us and continue to invite us into your presence and into your sanctuary. Help us to see your goodness each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.